0: Welcome back, listeners, to another episode of Let's Talk Talk. Today we have author and language inventor, Mr. David J. Peterson, on the show. Welcome, David. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. Well, you may recognize David's work from little TV shows like uh, Game of Thrones and the CW's 100. Uh, David, invented you you invented Dothraki and like, High Valyrian for the show, is that right? Yep. Well, that is fantastic. And the reason that's relevant, folks, is because we're going to be talking about conlangs today. David, what in the world is a, is a conlang? Conlang
1: is short for construction language it was a word that uh, they came up with when they were creating the first listserv the very first uh, language creation community because they needed something short to go in front of the at listserv part uh, and so they just shortened up constructed language and came up with conlang um, at the time I don't think a lot of people used that word for a created language but um, you know so many people came to the listserv and it started to grow so much that people just started to use it. And now it's in the Oxford English Dictionary and also uh, Merriam-Webster's is the latest one. So now it's, uh, it's English's word for a created language. Anyway, so uh, a constructed language is... Uh, a consciously uh, created language that is uh, created by one or more people uh, who know that what they're doing is creating a language and they're trying to create a communication system and that contrasts with what we call Natlangs, natural language those that evolve uh, naturally one you know just like any language that's spoken on earth or any language that's signed on earth um, of course humans create these but it's more of an unconscious process and basically Hmm. these things just kind of come to exist and then evolve naturally over time whereas when you're constructing one it's entirely uh, unnatural that is you're you're thinking about all the decisions that come into, you know, come you know, in terms of what the phonology is going to be, what the grammar is going to be, what the words are going to be, how the semantics are going to work, and then um, why it exists, why this language exists in our universe or in a fictional one that you're creating.
0: Right. Well, you know, linguistically, what, what is the first step? Do you start with like the phonemic inventory? Like what is square one for creating a language?
1: Even before that, you have to start with the purpose gotcha. uh, because there's, I mean, you, you If you're talking about just creating a language in the abstract, there are so many possibilities that you have to decide on a purpose at the very outset. For example, if you're, uh, you know, if you're creating a sign language, then obviously creating a phonology with, you know, uh, mouth sounds is not going to be relevant (laughs) at at the same time. If um, there's also, for example, purely visual languages. Um, A number of people have done those, I've done one of those, where, uh, you know, phonology doesn't really enter into it, or at least not in the same way, um, if you're just using visual symbols. Um, And then, of course, uh, let's say that you're dealing with spoken languages. There are even further designations or, or, or distinctions that can be made at that point. So if you're creating a language that's supposed to be spoken by a real set of people, then the language that they speak should probably be something that a human could plausibly speak something that's naturalistic, something that looks like it's evolved over a period of years. If you're creating a language that you just want to speak, you know, right now, for yourself, with friends and family, I mean, then you should probably make it easy to learn and have words for things that you discuss in your daily life. If you're working with a set of aliens, then it depends, you know. Well, what's their physiology? What might what tokens might they use to build a language up? So that's the very, very first step is to figure out very concretely why does this language exist? Why am I creating it? What is its purpose? Was what, it, what is its setting? And from there, um, it's going to determine what your next steps are going to be.
0: Right. Well, you know that that sort of brings up. Um... You were mentioning sort of types of uh, of uh, constructed languages, and and I know that a lot of people, if they've heard of a constructed languages, they have pr- likely heard of either sort of the a priori uh like logic based languages or auxiliary languages that people created as sort of this universal language that we this universal lingua franca that's sort of artificially made is supposed to be super easy to learn and things like that um but the types of languages that that we're familiar with w- that you've created are sort of natural like languages that are supposed to have sort of included um oh gosh sort of fabricated a an impression of of them naturally evolving and that norm- have normal sort of like quirks and things like no- other languages. And I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is because how do you create a language that looks like it has been through something natural?
1: Very, very simple actually. Well, it's simple to describe taxing to carry out. <laughs> yeah. um, but uh, the languages that we speak today are the way they are simply because they've evolved over thousands of years. And so... Mm-hmm we know a lot about how languages evolve we know a ton about how sound changes over time Um, and we know a fair amount about how the meanings of words change over time and uh, kind of a newer uh, trend at least in historical linguistics is to really understand how grammar changes over time how grammar emerges Mm -hmm. and so if you know how that stuff works then you just do it but you do it actively now, of course, we don't know how language emerged at the very beginning, and so we're a bit hamstrung in that regards. But it's also, you know, a little freeing um, right. in that, you know, if 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 linguists don't even know how language emerged at the outset, then a, a language creator shouldn't be expected to as well. They can posit their own uh, genesis point, or just uh, start at some cutoff point and say, all right, before this point in time. All records are lost, so this is how the language exists at this point. Then, from that point, you can evolve forward to your target point, and that's doing—you know—doing all of the things that historical linguists have learned. So, changing the sounds over time, um, changing word meanings over time, changing the grammar over time, and evolving—you know—new bits of grammar to create the modern language. Um, and, of course, naturally, some of these are going to affect other bits. So, like, you know, sound changes uh, may affect grammar changes because where there was a distinction, there no longer is. Like sure. uh, like how the accusative and the genitive merged in Finnish because of a simple sound change that changed M at the end of a word to N. Things like that will happen. And so this is the process you're crafting as you're going along. And uh, sure. hopefully on, on the other end, you'll have a language that is naturalistic, that is something that could have evolved on Earth, even if there are bits of that language that don't currently exist in any other language on the planet. Mm -hmm. If you came by them honestly, then theoretically they could exist.
0: Right. What trips me out so much, we were talking about language naturalization, is that even in in these auxiliary languages, the most famous of which that I can think of is Esperanto. Obviously, and -hmm. what's funny to me is that even whenever the idea is to make a very regular language that has variable word order, free word order, um, as soon as you get native speakers and as soon as people learn it, it it naturalizes. It changes. It solidifies word order. You you go through morphology. uh, You know, like you mentioned, accusative. Uh, more which kind of sparked in my head too, is that that um, that that's being lost in in uh, native speakers of Esperanto uh, due to them having solidified word order. So language naturalization happens even within languages that are not supposed to uh, have that possible. You uh, it trips me out so bad because I guess it goes back to like you said, it's very easy to be uh to to just be have a natural language because it happens uh, naturally. Dare I say?
1: Yeah, um, doesn't that that doesn't actually surprise me with Esperanto? I mean, it's uh, the the accusative case doesn't really do very much, right. especially if you're not taking advantage of the changes in word order. But it's not it's not very robust. It's it's yeah. more it's more agreement than anything else than than marking, and it's unnecessary. Um, so yeah
0: no yeah no it's, it's that's what just something that kills me no matter if anything you're trying not to be natural it's still going to naturalize as soon as people use it the and i was going to ask you about your your languages do you do you make proto languages and for the folks at home uh proto language is obviously just a language before a language so like um whenever you create dothraki d- is there a proto dothraki you went through um or did you just go straight straight right into sort of just creating it uh from from uh its surface
1: yeah it's called proto planes Um, It's the proto-language of Dothraki, and also the Lazarine language, which we never got a chance to do, it doesn't really feature in the story. But the languages are supposed to be related, so of course they're going to descend from a proto-language.
0: As far as um, the actively doing that, how how do you go about, whenever you think of a language, do you you create the proto-language first, or do you think of, and you sort of uh, expand upon that? Or do you have, like, okay, Dothraki exists, now I have to give myself history? You know, give a historicity.
1: I mean, you could do that. It's just not, it's more difficult. So, I mean, language creators will do that. I think of it as kind of, um, it's kind of the the impatient way of doing it. Because then it's just like, well, I want my language and I want it now. So I'm going to create it. But then you just make, (laughs) you just make your life harder. By having to go back and try to fabricate all the reasons that the various things you decided on a whim exist it's much easier to just create the the proto language first evolve it up and then it's like well that's why it exists i mean naturally you are working out of time with respect to the fictional universe, so it's not like, um, you know, you can't undo anything or revise anything. But the more stuff that gets down on paper, the more you have to rip out by the roots if you decide to change the proto-language or something about it later on. So it's easier to get as much of that stuff done ahead of time as you can. Um, So that's what I try to do when I have the time to do it.
0: I got you. So uh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. That's uh, that's that's the answer to the question. I was one. <laughs> do you do you uh, do you account for sort of dialectal differences and regional variation, social social variation? You said you mentioned a minute ago that you had some related languages um, within the Game of Thrones universe, but um, not that even if it's not um, uh, reflected within the, the, the media or uh, the TV uh, show itself or the stories itself, Is it important to have things like, oh, there's social, you know, dialects and there are regional dialect changes and things like that for fictional languages?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's something that everybody does when they're working on their own. Um, When I'm working on a show, I often don't have the time to do it and I don't have the call to do it. But um, because, you know, it'll be like two people that come from exactly the same place. And they're the only people that speak this language, you know, and they have like the entire same, you know, history and backstory. Right. But, um, you know, it should, it, it should be there in that that's the way that these things happen. It's just a question for a TV show if it's going if you're going to get to see it. And you do see it in Game of Thrones, not with Dothraki, though. Um, you know, Dothraki, you have a really small sample Sure. Um, on the show. Just as far as the the types of speakers that you get, um, but where you see a great variety is Valyrian because right. you have uh, first of all, like for High Valyrian, you never see and probably never will see um, anybody who spoke the language in its original, you know, in its original fictional setting. Mm-hmm. Um, that entire civilization has been lost. Uh, instead, you have uh, Daenerys has preserved through her family one variant of the older language and then you see a number of people who have learned it as an academic subject the way that people learned Latin in the right. 17th and 18th century uh, and who will speak it in the way that they do which is not the way that it was originally spoken um, and you also see people who obviously didn't pay very much attention during those lessons in Tyrion. It's a lot of fun to see him kind of butcher Valyrian. Right. Um, then you see three different cities, really only two different cities. It's mainly Astapor um, and Yukai who have kind of a similar uh, dialect group. And then Marine. And of these, of course, are languages that descended from High Valyrian. So it's probably the only time I've ever gotten to show the proto-language of a of a language, and the actual in the actual language um, that evolved from it. It's the only time on a show where I've gotten to show a proto-language that I've created, and then the language that descended from it, and they're both being used on the show at the same time. Um, That's cool. This also happens in in the hundreds since the proto-language was English, but you know I didn't create English, um, <laughs> but uh, and then. Uh, of the languages that descended from high valyrian we have astaporian valyrian and Myronese valyrian and these are actually the same language um just two different dialects two different uh two different set of sound changes two different accents i guess uh and they're quite they're quite distinct they're quite different sounding um so that that was a lot of fun to be able to do to take the you know the one language and then just um, really just take a bat to the the sounds of it produce something that sounded very much different but it's actually the same language
0: yeah it's trips me out so bad because um, the way you're talking about it if people weren't overtly aware that these were constructed languages the way you mentioned them in their history behind them th- you could just be talking about some you know some country that doesn't exist anymore and the languages it's 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 very uh it's very intertwined with how just linguists talk historical linguists it's 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 funny okay so let me rephrase the my brother and I uh were discussing how English is going to change and how you how you sort of um predict uh linguistic change when I told him it's it's impossible you know it's borderline impossible you can only sort of synchronically do that and you can make some guesses here and there so what I want to ask you is like you mentioned the 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 100 having the proto-language English how in the world do you do you, what kind of artistic liberties do you take to, to create a, uh, a, a language from English?
1: Well, in this case, that was a difficult situation because I don't think it's one that is 100% linguistically valid. Um, but I mean, for a number of reasons, one of which is that I didn't start working on the show until season two. And at that point in time, the people that were supposed to be speaking a language that evolved from English were already revealed to be English speakers. And so now they're speaking mm. English and also a language that's evolved from English. It doesn't that's make bizarre. any sense. Yeah, but, uh, but it's bizarre. like, but it, it's, like and it's not their fault. They didn't think of ever having they didn't think of these people speaking a different language ever. Um, They also, of course, didn't think of how language might have changed in, you know, 150 years and how it might have changed differently for people that live 100 years up in a space station and people live on the ground. But, you know, it
0: turns out it's just flawless um, contemporary English is what happens.
1: Yeah. Contemporary, often Canadian influenced English, (laughs) even though it takes place in Virginia. So that was I mean, you know, whatever. They didn't think of it when when they when they did the show. That's fine. Right. Um then, you know, I, I came onto the show because an executive at CW thought this would be really cool. Uh and so they the, the executive recommended to the show that they hire me, which is also an an odd thing because usually it's the show's idea, not somebody else's idea. So, mm-hmm. you know, I tried my best to create something that made sense within the context of the show with the sci-fi liberties that the show takes. And the best I could do was, you know, I decided that they there would only be a subset of people that also spoke English. Most everybody would speak uh, Triget slang, and then yeah, right. some would speak English, because there were still people that they interacted with that spoke English. Um, the, specifically the people in the mountain, called the Mountain Men, or in Mount Weather. They still spoke English and they had dealings with them, so they had to be able to understand them. And so some of them maintained their fluency in English. But what they speak today is a product of just basic uh, linguistic evolution of English magnified by the fact that there is uh, at least, you know, when I was creating it, I thought there was absolutely no society anymore. Right. No, more, no more books, no more reading, no more education, no more mass media uh, or anything like that and also magnified by the fact that life expectancies you know dropped dramatically where it's like you know uh, especially at the beginning right after the big nuclear event mm-hmm. it's like living into your 30s you're an old person now so i figured you'd get some more generations out of that uh, 100 year gap than you would ordinarily right Um, So there was all that. Then added on, because it needed to be different enough from English that it would be warranted, I I came up with this idea about kind of this most successful group after the the nuclear blast uh, surviving. And one of the ways they survived was by making very conscious, very specific changes to the English that they spoke as a code.
0: Hmm, That's interesting.
1: And And then what happened is the code then kind of broke out once the group got larger and larger and they it just filtered in you know that their vocabulary much of the way like you know when we were borrowing latin vocabulary and they stuck around it, this is just like an entirely consciously created set of vocab hmm. that has become a part of the new english which is called tregetta so That's-
0: Yeah, no, that's that's actually a really uh, smart way to go about doing that. Yeah,
1: I I did my best. I did my best given the circumstances. Um, And so that's why, like, when you hear it, it's like it should be familiar um, and there should be a lot of stuff that are like English. But it's like you have all these words in there. It's like, wow, that doesn't mean anything like what I thought it would mean. And that's why.
0: Well, great. It's, it's like, that's super interesting. That's a uh, left with the options that you had. I think that's definitely the, the best choice you, you uh, could have made uh, as far as with that scenario. The as far as uh, constructing languages and the the hobby and sort of the art of, of conlanging. It it sort of forces uh, or sneakily uh, gets people into linguistics because of how focused it is on the, sort of the four basic subcomponents of linguistics. The you know that's to say you know syntax and uh, morphology and phonology and semantics. And it, it, like if you go on to the Reddit uh, conlanging uh, subreddit over there, it's it, they're so heavily invested in phonology, and everybody always talks about like what. Uh, what sounds are possible in the language what constraints are they going to have is that yeah. something that uh, that you also uh, cuz I know when I did when I dabbled in the into constructing constructing my own languages I would make it borderline impossible for me to even speak because I would use crazy you know sounds that are in, that are not in my native language and then I would have you know only certain times where they would use and you, everyone's first language everyone's first constructed language is always some sort of agglutinative uh you know, impossible to pronounce thing. Why do you think that happens? Is like, is that something that that you obsessed with too? Is the the phonology portion?
1: Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, it's just there uh, for the for the stuff I do for TV and film now. The phonology can never be very difficult because they right. they always they always want it to be easy for English speaking actors to pronounce. Which you know, that means you are not dealing with a, a great. You know, uh, a huge subset of the international phonetic, al- phonetic alphabet, at the very least. Um, also I've actually, i have actually,
0: yeah, no, I've read some uh, some articles that uh, e- even in the languages that you've created for them to be able to pronounce, they still will often mispronounce words, and now it's stuck I that way. I think, I, the, what Khaleesi is not Khaleesi, but that
1: <laughs> was just that was just dumb. I should have changed the spelling. I decided to stick with George R. R. Martin's spelling rather sure. than change the spelling to make it regular. <laughs> I should have changed the spelling.
0: Whenever you first um, got into sort of creating languages, did you find that you would um, make them overly complex?
1: Um, No. No? I mean, I mean, how to put this? I was creating stuff that I thought was overly complex but isn't. Oh, go, okay. And I think that's what a lot of language do. creators do. Figure hear that. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of the stuff that I see, like, just first-time language creators. They they hear hear about something and then they use it and they try to make it complex and it's just you know, it's like, okay, well it's like there are a lot of things distracting. There are a lot of red herrings in there so you think this is complex but actually you've just created something very vanilla. Um, (laughs) That's That's what that's what I see a lot. Um, A lot of a lot of people misunderstand or mistake uh, verbiage or just, uh, I guess, quantity for complexity. Right. Um, So it's like, I don't know. know, Say like, you know, my my language has, you know, has 700 different tenses all for if it's like all depending on the hour or something. It's like, okay, you could do that. It's just kind of dumb. It
0: reminds me, like we mentioned a while ago, some of the sort of the logical or the, uh, I put that in air quotes are the, uh, the a priori languages like Ithquil and like what Lajban and things like that, which are just like doing math and you can't naturally speak that. What is the reason to create a language like that to see if you can? Is it like climbing Everest?
1: No, I mean, no, you don't. I mean, most people don't create a language because they want people to speak it. Um, yeah, I, I really do believe that most conlingers don't do that. Sure, I mean, they're especially for for art are art pieces, and the kind of the best way that you can show appreciation for it is to go through the grammar to look at it and say, "Wow, that was really." It was a really interesting choice you made. I think that's that's brilliant. I really really like that. Mm -hmm. Not like you know coming to you and saying like uh, I need a word for this this and this because I'm trying to translate Don Quixote. I don't know. It just makes you roll your eyes.
0: Yeah. So it's just Um, like a creative outlet for for from you know stemmed from a descriptive science. That's cool, man. That's that's uh, yeah.
1: Now yeah now with something like like it's 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 again this is goal based. So the goal with Ithquil was to try to be to create a language uh, that allowed you to be as unambiguous as you can possibly be. Um, and to do that in as small a space as you could possibly, you know, uh, you know, make it. And so that's, you know, their design goals. And so it's like, all right, with those constraints, what are you going to do? And, right. and so he created ithquil and he does a pretty good job. Um, you know I don't, I don't know if anybody else has taken on those same goals and done a better job because uh, when it comes to uh, first of all being unambiguous it's probably impossible right and um, depending on how seriously you take that concept the second it's just really really tough because there's lots there are lots of variables and the more variables you have of uh, the more morphology you're going to need or the or the more ways you're going to need to to make that stuff explicit and, of course, the, the more that you try to make something explicit, that means you're either going to need more words or you're going to need more affixes. And, of right. course, the more of these you add, the longer the sentence gets. But that's not, you know, it would be easy if you had all the space in the world. You're trying to do it in a short space, you know. Right. And so it's not like the goal is to be able to speak it or, you know, I, John is a friend of mine. You're not know, trying to go around, and get people. Oh, you should all learn it. Cool. that's no, no, no. just not <laughs> right. That's not the point. The point was: here's the goals. Can you create something from it? And he did. You know? It's, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's
0: super impressive. Like if you get if you if the listeners at home, if you get the chance, you should go look at the Wikipedia article. It's it's super intricate, and there's supposed to be like no ambiguity, like you were saying saying a second ago, David. But it's yeah. um.
1: So on, also just a quick cap on this. So it's like sure. if you go to Ithquil, and you look at it, and you say like, and your response to it is like, oh, I think it sounds ugly. It's like, well, this is not. <laughs> you've not said anything that's that's right. even, you know, it, it's not the point. Whereas like if you sat down and say, I'm trying to create a language that's the most beautiful sounding language as possible, then that is the point. You go and listen to it and say, well, I think it sounds ugly, then that's a valid criticism of that language, you know?
0: Mm. No, I hear that. No, that's cool. But so um, We mentioned earlier, um, having talking about the different types of constructed language, you said it was like an art language, you know, um, it, it's, it's, it's cool to sort of think about that the goal is not always to speak. Cause whenever you think, whenever people think language, they think that the goal is communication. It's not always right. the case. Right. Um, and it's, it, it Constructive languages really illustrate that point. There are people that obviously, um, like, like if keep using that one, that it's, it's strictly to, to create as much as you can within the confines that you give yourself and has nothing to do with being able to talk to people. And I wanted to go back a, a real quick minute. Um, and address it whenever you use the word affixes for the folks at home. And affix is the generic word for those little pieces that you put onto a word, uh, like a suffix and a prefix, which you probably know. But affix is just sort of the, uh, the generic terminology for that. Yep. yep. So if, if you were to say, if, if you were to give an aspiring conlinger um, a square to start at, what would you do? Would you say, what, what would you tell them to do?
1: Well, uh, I guess, the like I said at the at the beginning, the very first thing is is, is to... Isolate why it is you're doing what you're doing, um, because if you haven't done that, there's going to be all of these options before you, and you're not going to have any way to decide among them. Right, uh, overwhelm you. So it's just like you know, come up with a, a point. It's like if you're if you're just starting out and you think I think this might be fun, then then maybe um, if you if you have a, a background in linguistics, you know, try creating a naturalistic language as a starting point sure. think of that as the as and if, if you enjoy it keep at it if you don't enjoy it going through the process of trying to create a naturalistic language is a, kind of a, a nice instructive example i guess and okay. so it can help you to uh figure out exactly what you want to do when you approach something else, and then you know, do that. And maybe you decide you want to do something different. Like um, a project, I still want to get back to is, I, I have that idea for for a, a game that's like Tetris, where each each segment can be filled with some sort of bit that has to do with language, and either be semantic or grammatical or something like that. And then you know, two people are playing this at the same time and trying to produce a story, but they, oh, wow but then it's just randomly. You know, it's random how you get the blocks and how many segments they're going to have. And then you might also have secondary goals about things that you're trying to use to actually generate a score. I think it could be fun. Yeah,
0: that um, sounds awesome, actually.
1: Yeah, I created a visual example of it. I just don't know how, to, how exactly it would work, and I probably need to do some coding in order to do some of that. But, you know, it's... It's it, that's the type of thing where it's just like, you know, totally different, not naturalistic at all. But, right. um, you know, knowing about how naturalistic lang- or how natural languages work can help you to better understand how people use language and what's useful to them. And, right. and you know, why like uh, creating a language that has, you know, one root and so like a billion affixes with totally free word order uh, might be unambiguous, but not very useful to a person. Right. Exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, it's... David, what I want to do, as I have a section called the morphologically interesting word of the day. And typically, mm. what I would do with uh, my guests is I would pick out some sort of English word uh, that I find morphologically interesting. We talk about why it was structured that way. But what I'd like to do, since I have you here, is for you to give me a morphologically interesting word from one of your languages.
1: Like, you know, for example, here's, here's two words. So we have the word for cat, right? Kelly. And then we have two words. Embonye. And um, and these uh, And bonnie is a, just an adjective Derived from the word for sea So it makes it an adjective Or from the sea And mm-hmm. bonnie is uh, from river So it's from the river And so you have uh, uh, You have an ocean cat And a river cat Which are
0: um, Oh gosh It sounds like a ginning or something man It's a, a An otter
1: that's right. A okay, sea great. otter and a river otter. I love those guys. <laughs>
0: um, oh, that's cool. That's actually really cool. Thanks, David. That's awesome.
1: You have a word, mio," which means rain. And then from that, so mio" is the word for rain. And then you have a verb, lirigon, which means to smile. Uh, a nominal derivation from that is lirinon, which is a smile or a smiling. Something wow. like that. Um, you can combine these into a rinon, but uh, the B is inserted because of the M and the L. It's just phonology. Right. So sure. is rainbow.
0: Huh. What? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, like, I like that <laughs> Those one. Those
0: are all very morphologically interesting words, David. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, sure. This is, no. how, this is how we have our fun, man.
0: Absolutely, this is tripping me out, but what I want to do is I want to ask you like what you're up to David uh, I know I know you have a book out and it's the called the uh, Art of Language Invention from Horse Lords to Dark Elves: The Words Behind World Building and I'm very excited to uh you know get my peepers on that one for sure because it's um I didn't realize that there was there was one available and now there is so
1: yeah yeah and 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 for fun, you can go spot the one place in the entire book where the word morpheme appears. Oh, it'll be it'll be like a, an Easter It'll be day. like
0: a treasure hunt for me. Absolutely. Yeah, yes.
1: um, but yeah, so I got uh, that that book out. And that is a book that teaches you how to create languages. Awesome. Um, also goes through some some pretty hard through some intro linguistics. So nothing right. that nothing that should be new if you if you have a degree in linguistics, but it is if you're not. Um, but what is what might be new to you if you if you came from linguistics is the large piece on uh, grammaticalization. So mm-hmm. that's that that should be at least fun for for those with a background in linguistics. And then I guess the latest thing that I have coming up is I'm teaching a course on that's language right. creation, how to right. create a language, yeah. at at Berkeley. It starts May 22nd. And, um, and yeah, so I figured if this is coming out before then there's, there's still time to sign up though. Of course you have to be in the area.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. uh, If you're, if you're listening from little rock, then you're going to have a, quite a drive to go sign up.
1: Yeah. uh, (laughs) (laughs) And then I guess, um, the, the next step coming out is eventually season two of the Shannara Chronicles is going to come out. Um, the next season, of uh, Game of Thrones is airing in the summer, and mm-hmm. then there's just one more after that. Uh, the 100 is currently airing, and right. it's been renewed, so it'll have a fifth season sometime next year. haven't heard about Emerald City, if it's coming back. And then I've created two languages and two writing systems for a movie called Bright. That's going to debut on Netflix at the end oh, nice. of this year or the beginning of next year, starring Will Smith and Joel Edgerton.
0: All right, so look for Bright and listen for David's new languages. The, um, oh gosh, where can we find you on social media?
1: Uh, Most places, if you type in my handle, D-E-D-A-L-V-S. It's like Daedalus, but spelled a Latin type way. I've just had that that, that handle forever. You can find me there on Twitter and on Tumblr. Those are the places I'm active most. Wonderful. Otherwise, uh, my website is artoflanguageinvention.com
0: artoflanguageinvention.com. Wonderful. David, I really appreciate you coming on the show and talking to us a little bit about Constructed Languages. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to do it. Listeners, if you enjoyed our talk with David Peterson today about Constructed Languages, then consider learning a little bit more and diving into that world yourself with David's book, The Art of Language Invention, From Horse Lords to Dark Elves, The Words Behind World Building. I'll leave a link to purchase the book in the show notes. Guys, when you use the link in the show notes, it's going to monetarily support the show and help us continue to bring you rich, awesome content about pop linguistics. And as always, guys, thanks for listening.